cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, May 4th, 2011. I'm so excited because after today, we're halfway through our worst Easter sermons of the year contest. Now, it's looking like we're only going to have to slog through five of them, one per day. (laughs) <laughs> That's the good news. Yeah, the, <laughs> the bad news is is that I've, I think I've saved the worst to last. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And, Fortunately, you got a lot of people out there basically making claims about God that cannot be substantiated from what he's revealed about himself and what the truth is in his word. Uh, We live in a time where doctrine has become a four-letter word. Not that it is a four-letter word. I mean, just count the letters. Um, Keen observation skills on my part. But uh, what happens is is that uh, so many times we hear people say things like, Doctrine is it, it divides people, and, and the idea is well, duh. <laughs> yes, it it divides. Doctrine does divide. It divides truth from error, light from darkness, uh, falsehood from the truth, and so doctrine is just a fancy schmancy word for teaching. Everybody who teaches is teaching doctrine. So even the teaching that doctrine divides is a quote doctrine so it's it, you know when somebody says doctrine divides they're actually believing in a doctrine that is supposed to well divide people and cut them away from believing that you know, doctrine is useful well here's the idea is is that when somebody opens up a biblical text uh, in many cases today that uh, that that particular step in in sermonizing is skipped yeah, we don't want the Bible to get in the way of our religion now, would we? But um, when somebody opens up a biblical text or ascends to a pulpit or to a stage and begins to wax eloquent or pontificate or begin to tell you what God is all about and what he expects of you and what what are the important things in, in regards to religion and in the worship of, of, of God— 
If it cannot be substantiated from the clear teaching of God's Word, they're teaching false doctrine. If somebody is opening up God's Word and they're correctly handling it, they're handling it and conveying to you and helping you to to better understand the intent and the message of what the Holy Spirit had recorded in that passage, then they're teaching sound doctrine or true doctrine. And, And the thing is, is that a lot of churches... They mix truth with error, and in some cases, this mixing is is um, it's premeditated. And what I mean by that is is that uh, that one of the things that's very clear, it, very clear, is is that the, these seeker driven guys have a sense that they understand that if they were to actually take the time to open the biblical text and teach exegetically what God has recorded there in context. Uh, that many of the people that have been attracted to their churches through their marketing efforts uh, and their watered-down pop psychology self-help type messages, they would leave the building uh, in, in a hot second and never come back. They would flee the building because that's not what they signed up for. That's not what they were attracted to. They were attracted to a God that was presented to them as one that was palatable to their uh, understandings about God already, what they in you know in, in innovatively think about God, what they already think about Him, and the problem is is that because we are sinful by nature, every single one of us suffers from bad ideas, false doctrine, and false ideas regarding God. And we don't come to the truth about God. We don't discover it by looking inside of ourselves to uh you know to and then let that be the measure as to whether or not something is true or false in in other words you, uh, liver shivers uh gut checks things like that um you can't put a lot of stock in them you you just can't you don't know these things intuitively because we're sinful by nature so what happens is is that when we approach the biblical text the biblical text is going to challenge your false beliefs. It's going to challenge many of the popularly held ideas about God that are floating around in the current cultural milieu. And uh, and those when when you find that happening, uh, you might be tempted to go, oh come on, it can't mean that. Or you you might be tempted to just brush it aside, say, you know, to not believe it. To you might even become angry at God because the what what we re, what we learn about God is is that He's not a safe, warm, fuzzy ball of lint that you find inside of the trap inside of your uh, dryer at home. Um, God, um, He has His own way of doing things. Um, he has his own approach to things, and he acts like he runs the whole universe while well, he made it, and that he's in charge, he sets the rules, and he's set up particular things to be true, and we may not like them. There's there's aspects of God's nature that we don't like by our own nature because we are sinful and fallen creatures. And we, and ultimately... All sin is a breaking of the first commandment. The first commandment says, you shall not have any other gods except for me. You shall have no other gods before me. None. No gods. And there's the rub. 
because the te- in the temptation, in the fall in the garden, when uh, Satan uh, you know, did his devilish work in the Garden of Eden and tempted Adam and Eve, our first parents, the first human beings that God created, he created Adam from the dust and he created Eve from the, one of the ribs of Adam. But the two first people that God created, and Satan was quick to get in there, and his temptation, first and foremost, he tried to create doubt in what God's word said. Did God really say? And then he held out a false promise. The idea being is, is that he made the claim that God was holding something good from Adam and Eve that he didn't want them to have something good that they desired. And so the thing that he tempted Eve with is he says, God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because he, God knows, that on the day that you eat of the fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Really? Like God? I'll be God-like? And see, there's the problem. All Sin has in its origin the breaking of the first commandment. That's the root of all of our sin. And so when we disobey God, when we disobey him in thought, in doctrine, in word, in deed, by the things we do, by the things that we don't do, we are usurping ourselves and making ourselves to be God above the one true God. And that's the reason why God calls all sinners to repent, to change their mind, and be forgiven of their sins. Because we are not God. We do not know better. And God's word is truth, and his word sanctifies us. We are sanctified in truth by the word of God, and it is his word that transforms and renews our minds so that we, so that we begin to think the way God thinks. Now, people like to describe it as a, uh, as a Christian worldview, and I, that's, that's a useful term. Um, you know, and I, I, I would argue that it's a God worldview. It's a heavenly worldview. It's the view of the world and the truth that God has. And since, I, I, you know, I don't want to have thoughts that are in conflict with God's thoughts. I want to learn to think God's thoughts. And the only way I'm going to do that is by becoming an ardent and careful and attentive student of God's Word. I'm not going to find it through liver shivers. I'm not going to find it by having some so-called mystical experience where I supposedly ascend into the heavenlies. No, I'm not. That's not how we're going to do this. We're, you know, all of us have been given God's Word, and it's miraculous in its creation, miraculous in its preservation, and absolutely eye-opening and in your face in the doctrines that it teaches regarding what God has revealed about himself who he is, what he's like, what he expects of us, what our problem is as as a species, what the solution is to that problem, and what happens to those who continue to persist 
in their rebellion against God. You may not like the picture, but the reality is, is you have zero authority on your own to claim that you've got a better revelation because you haven't died and you haven't risen again. And Jesus Christ, the one true God in human flesh, he actually puts his stamp of approval on all of God's word. He claims that the Old Testament is true. He never deconstructs it, never attacks it, never casts any doubt upon any of its word, but always speaks of it as if everything that's recorded in it is literally true. From Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, to the story of Noah and the worldwide flood, to to Abraham, to David, to Jonah, even in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus never, ever, ever questions, impugns, deconstructs, maligns, or casts doubt uh, upon God's Word, but always upholds it as God's Word. In fact, he makes these claims. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's Word will never pass away. God's Word will never pass away. Why? Because... It is that which came from God himself, and he is eternal, and what he's revealed is eternally true, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our technology might change, our cultures might change, but the reality is is that the problem that all of humanity faces is the same problem that it has faced since Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden, that every single one of us has attempted, actually has been born, we're born in rebellion against God, sided with the devil, God's mortal enemy, the one whom Jesus will actually cast into the lake of fire himself on the last day, at the great battle at the end of time. Jesus is going to take that old serpent, that dragon who has deceived the nations and cast him into the lake of fire, as well as all of those who persist in sin and unbelief, and refuse to be forgiven. You think Osama bin Laden's in tragedy. That is the tragedy of tragedies, that we, by nature, have sided with the devil. Adam and Eve sided with Satan against God, and the repercussions that we see in our planet are all a result of our participation in that sinful rebellion against God. But the good news is that God is merciful, God is kind, God is loving, and God is just. And he has fulfilled his justice. He's fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. And Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, has taken on the sins of the world upon himself and propitiated the wrath of God. Jesus has made the way for us to be reconciled to God and to receive from God our Heavenly Father full and complete pardon for all of our sins. And that good news is for you, Christian, not just the non-Christians. We, as Christians, struggle and wrestle with our sinful nature. As As God continues to sanctify us through the Holy Spirit and through His Word and sacraments, we continue to wrestle with our sinful nature and are locked in a mortal battle. And we need to hear that good news preached to us, announced to us that we are forgiven because daily we sin much and daily we still continue to fall short of the mark that God has set in his word and his law. 
But the law doesn't have its last word. It is the gospel that has its last word in our lives. And so we've been given this wonderful message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and we are ambassadors of this good news, calling people to repent and be reconciled to God and announcing to them that God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ and what he's done. This is truly good news, and nobody wants to believe this by nature, and sadly there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians, who are teachers in the Christian church, who are attacking and maligning and impugning this very gospel message. But this gospel message will stand till the end of time because it is the truth. Because this is what's recorded in God's Word, and God's Word is true. And and Satan can rail against it, against it, and the nations can do what they that they they want. They can try all they want to rail against this good news, but it'll do them no good because it is true, and it will stand through all of time and eternity. All right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've got a couple of, um, uh, it's so funny, <sighs> this is one of those weeks when I'm, when I'm doing program prep where I'm going, yeah, I think I might want to engage in some Bible teaching. The reason why is because everybody seems to be obsessed with one of two topics, and um, I don't particularly find either of them that compelling. Uh, but one one of the major topics that people are still talking about is the royal wedding. Funny enough, and uh, I just am I, I'm just not all that inspired to talk about the royal wedding. I I, I just I. <clears throat> Yeah, it's just it's just best if I don't even go there. That's that's all I have to say about the topic. Well, the other one that everyone's still talking about is Osama bin Laden. And I, funny enough, I've actually found two uh, two things on the internet that I found worth passing along uh, regarding Osama bin Laden. One uh, written by Michael Horton, and the other written by uh, the Reverend William Swirla. And uh, both of them talking about two, the two kingdoms, and I think they're worth passing along, so I'll pass those along to you today. Um, I've got an Albert Muller piece on why conservative churches are growing, um, worth passing along as well, and uh, a quick little funny little satirical piece that I found to be close to the mark um, from the uh, Wittenberg Church Door um, uh, <laughs> website, a blog, entitled Emergent Response to the Death of Bin Laden, and there's a, there's a series of emergent uh, people who've responded not for real, but it's worth passing along. Good satire here. And uh, and then I'm going to spend a little bit of time. I want to spend a little bit of time in the Bible. I want to spend some time looking at the book of Revelation. There's a lot of people out there who call themselves red-letter Christians. And that's kind of code talk, because the the, the folks who generally ident- identify themselves as red-letter Christians, um, they're, they're, they're liberal, they're either postmodern or modernist liberals, uh, they're, um, they're neo-Marcionites, and if you know what the Marcionite heresy is, is that they don't accept all of the Word of God as truly being the Word of God, or they think that some portions of Scripture, like the red letters, are more the Word of God than other portions of Scripture, especially uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul. But um, the careful student of God's Word will be wise to remember that in the book of Revelation, and uh, written and revealed, you know, written by and uh, revealed to the apostle John, um, we have an entire section near the beginning of uh, the uh, the Revelation uh, book of Revelation that um, 
is all in red letters because it's Jesus Christ himself who's speaking. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time taking a look at that section of the New Testament written in red letters and look at Jesus Christ's view of false doctrine and sexual immorality worth passing along to you and uh, worth also remembering and then uh, and then after that we're we're going to uh, do our third <clears throat> we'll have our third contestant in this year's uh, 2011 edition of the worst easter sermon of the year contest and i'm going to be going to michigan uh, not literally but to, we're going to be going to michigan and listening to uh, c3 exchange churches that's uh, ian lawton that's the gentleman who who uh, made the national headlines when their church took down their cross and they changed their name to C3 Exchange. Uh, this is the guy who considers himself to be spiritual but not religious, and uh, and was of course uh, you know one of the gentlemen uh, interviewed uh, regarding uh, you know, that that online seminar. Uh, promoting Christianity and evolution, you know, uh, Christianized evolution, and uh, and so we're going to be listening to uh, Ian Lawton's Easter sermon from a uh, couple weeks ago, and he- here's the deal: I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you right now, it's everything that you would expect from Ian Lawton and C3 Exchange. That's not why I'm playing it. You know, it truly is an abysmal, horrible, bad, awful Easter sermon. But the reason I'm going to play it. Is uh, is because when you listen to that sermon and you hear the themes, you hear what he's attacking, and you hear what he wants to replace what he's attacking with, um, you'll realize that that hits really close. Some of the suggestions that he has as to why we need to change the Easter message and what we need to focus on instead. Um, we've got. I I can point you to major seeker-driven megachurches who are already preaching those themes as if they're Christian sanctification, and it's just very interesting because what you, what whatever you think of Ian Lawton, I personally think he's apostate, an apostate heretic. But regardless of that, um, I gotta thank him for this. At least he's honest and has the courage of his convictions. He tore down the cross off of his church and uh, and is consistent with his teaching. Let's just put it that way. Um, so that'll be our um, you know what we're doing today. So uh, with that, let's dive into the program proper. Yeah, by the way, this is our new uh, music that we're going to be using when we just do generic emergent church updates. Enjoy. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was a look dog or something shocking, but now God knows anything goes. Good offers to who wants you better words, now only used for letter words, writing prose. 
anything goes. That's right. Anything goes. Uh, yeah, that, that's our new music for uh, when we just have a generic emergent, uh, emergent church update. Anything goes. Uh, from the uh, Wittenberg Church Door uh, website, emergent response to the death of bin Laden. Um, uh, the uh, the blog post reads, uh, people around the world are responding to the death of Osama bin Laden. I'm particularly fascinated by the response of well-known emergence in EOA evangelicals to the death of bin Laden. Here's a sampling. Rob Bell, Osama bin Laden is in hell. Really? And you feel compelled to tell people this? I have to say love wins, and this story is so much larger. Remember, Jesus painted blood on the doorposts of the universe and has reconciled all things to himself. Imagine the hell he has already experienced living in that $1 million bunker on the border of Pakistan. Now that he is dead, I, he will sure be sure to choose Jesus. I, I'm sure that I will see him in the new creation someday. That's uh, Rob Bell's response. Shane Hips, a co-pastor with Rob Bell, uh, his response, uh, who are we to judge? O- Osama bin Laden has ha- has the Imago Day, that divine spark. He just chose a, a different sail with which to catch the winds of the Spirit. <clears throat> uh, Rick Warren. <laughs> it's funny to see Rick Warren in this list. Rick Warren, his response, I was looking forward to working with bin Laden to bring my peace plan to Afghanistan and Pakistan. It does not matter what people believe. We can join hands with them to accomplish humanitarian goals in that region. <clears throat> Samir Salmanovic. Uh, Osama bin Laden served the same God that I do, even though he called him Allah and worshipped him by murdering Christians and Jews whom he calls infidels. Uh, thank you, Samir. Doug Paget. Uh, his response. Osama bin Laden is going to be reconciled and restored to God just like the rest of us. Thank you, Doug. Uh, <laughs> Uh, then Jay Baker. <clears throat> this one's a little obtuse if you don't know Jay Baker's theology. Osama bin Laden was born as a murderer. How can we judge him for doing what he was born to do? After all, if loving his Muslim brothers and sisters meant killing Americans, who are we to judge who and how he loves? Yeah, there you go. Thank you very much uh, for um, Pastor Boy down there at the uh, Wittenberg Church door. Uh, for his uh, t- compiling these important uh, responses from emergent church leaders uh, to the death of Osama bin Laden. Moving along. From the White Horse Inn blog, headline reads, The death of Osama bin Laden, what kind of justice has been done? Written by Dr. Michael Horton. Um, Understandably, news of Osama bin Laden's demise at the hands of U.S. Navy SEALs provoked cries of celebration. The mastermind of terror, even against civilians, indeed against fellow Muslims, has been brought to justice. But what kind of justice? In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, President George W. Bush authorized Operation Infinite Justice, especially after his comment that this crusade, this war on terrorism, is going to take a while. However, the mission was renamed Operation Enduring Freedom. Reportedly, the name change was due at least in part to the concern raised by Muslims that only God can execute infinite justice. One would have hoped that the change had provoked instead uh, had been provoked instead by Christian reaction. Islam, of course, is uh, not just a religion; it's a cultural and even geopolitical reality. As such, its strict strict adherents excoriate co-religionists like. Uh, Abdullahi Ahmed Ah Naim, who call for, quote, an Islamic reformation that would make jihad into a spiritual struggle rather than an armed military conflict. Unfortunately, Christianity 
has had a long and complicated history of its own on this score. Um, on one hand, on the one hand, you got the fourth century theologian Augustine responded to the sacking of Rome with a detailed scriptural argument for two cities: the city of God and the city of man. Each city had its own origins, ends, and means. As citizens of both kingdoms, every believer is called to recognize the difference between them. Compared with the city of God, the city of man is hardly a true commonwealth. It cannot ensure ultimate peace, security, justice, and love. Nevertheless, Augustine argues that it can still be considered a commonwealth in a limited provisional and penultimate sense. Out of these reflections, especially on the city of God, there arose a legacy of just war theory and a Christian realism about the legitimacy and limitation of human societies in this time between between the times. Nevertheless, the Middle Ages gave rise to a fusion of Christ and culture known as Christendom. In the name of Christendom, kings and their knights rode off to crusades with pa- uh, papal blessing as David and the hosts of Yahweh Redivivus uh, cleansing the holy land of infidels. In spite of its own contradictions in practice, the magisterial reformation sought to distinguish between the kingdom of Christ, which conquers by word and spirit, and the kingdoms of this age that are given the divine authority to defend Temporal justice, drawing on the New Testament and the Church Fathers, especially Augustine, the Reformers realized that there was no theocracy in the New Covenant. All nation-states were secular in the sense of being common rather than holy. With no holy land, there can be no holy war, only just wars based on natural law. But ideas like Christendom die hard. We saw that with the memorial service after 9-11 held in a building popularly known as the National Cathedral, with military honor guards processing and strains of onward Christian soldiers, announcements of a resolve to secure infinite justice in in an open-ended crusade, provided fodder for Islamic extremists in their effort to replay ancient battles. A romantic patriotism has always seethed beneath the professed separation of church and state, as the famous Battle Hymn of the Republic, written by a Unitarian, the hymn confuses Union victory with Christ's final judgment, something very close to infinite justice. Cultures are the most dangerous when they invoke holy texts for their defense of holy land through a holy war. However, Christians have no biblical basis for doing this in the first place. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clearly abrogated the ceremonial and civil law that God had given uniquely to the nation of Israel. Now is the era of common grace and common land, obeying rulers, even pagan ones, and living under constitutions rather than the one that God gave through Moses. As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 13, secular rulers are given the power of the temporal sword, finite justice, while the gospel conquers in the power of the Spirit through the Word above all earthly powers. What does all of this mean for our response to the news about the most notorious terrorists in recent history? Well, first, it means that we can rejoice that even in this present evil age, God's common grace and common justice are being displayed through secular authorities. Quote, For the ruler is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Yet the divine wrath that rulers execute is temporal and finite rather than eternal and infinite. Such justice is never so pure that it is unmingled with injustice, never so final that it satisfies God's eternal law. 
In view of the image of God stamped on every person, justice must always be tempered by love. Commenting on Genesis 9-6, John Calvin reminded us that we cannot hate even our most perverse enemies because of the image of God in them. In one sense, the creation of every person in God's image provokes the temporal sword against murderers. Yet in another sense, it also restrains our lust for revenge. Quote, Should any one object that is divine image have been obliterated, the solution is easy. First, there yet exists some remnant of it, so that man is possessed of no small dignity. And secondly, the celestial creator himself, however corrupted man may be, still keeps in view the end of his original creation. And according to to his example, we ought to consider for what end he created men and what excellence he has bestowed upon them above the rest of the living beings. Second, it means that we cannot rejoice in the death of the wicked any more than does God. Uh, Ezekiel 18.23, we read, um, God says, I have, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. We may take satisfaction that temporal justice has been served, but Christians should display a sober restraint when Christ returns, bringing infinite justice in his wake. His saints will rejoice in the death of his enemies. For now, however, he calls us to pray for our enemies, even those who persecute us. This is the day of salvation, calling sinners to repent and believe the good news. We may delight in the temporal justice shown to evildoers, but leave the final justice to God. Third, it means that the mandate to believe and to proclaim the gospel to every person is all the more urgent. After all, where would we be ourselves if Christ in the first advent had brought final and infinite justice instead of bearing it on behalf of his people? On the cross, Christ willingly offered himself as the lightning rod for God's infinite wrath, rising triumphantly on the third day. The events of 9-11 did not change everything in the way that the events of 33 AD did, nor did the death of Osama bin Laden on 5-1-11 satisfy the final justice that awaits us awaits him and all of us on the last day. So as we take satisfaction in the honorable service of U.S. forces in bringing a terrorist to justice in the court of the temporal city, let us never dare to confuse this with the city that has its foundations and whose designer and builder is God. In our response, let us use this opportunity to display our non to our non-Christian neighbors the radical contrast between the biblical view of God, humanity, redemption, and the last judgment, and the religious and secularist distortions, even those that profess to be Christian. Great piece worth worth passing along. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> ha 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 ha. 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. That's what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Christianity is unique in that it is based upon historical fact. None of the other religions are that in which if you could disprove one historical fact, the whole religion would crumble. But that's how it is with Christianity. If you can disprove that Christ did not raise from the dead, then there is no such thing as Christianity. That's a topic of a debate for a live Table Talk radio presentation. Did Jesus rise from the dead? The debaters is Dr. David Scare of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the book, What Do You Think About Jesus? versus Dr. Robert Price, fellow for the Jesus Seminar and author of the book, The Case Against the Case for Christ. This all takes place on Pirate Christian Radio, Sunday night, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call in live to pose your questions to the debaters. Listen to Table Talk Radio Live, a debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead, on Pirate Christian Radio, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners 
a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your, in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. What has happened to the time? Holy guacamole. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could put you in a time warp. <laughs> Looking at the clock going, did I really talk that long? <laughs> Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Listen, we love bringing the gospel to you. We love doing what we're doing here, uh, doing sound biblical work, preaching the gospel, doing discernment, comparing what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. This is all uh, our way of loving and serving you and what we do. Sadly, at the moment, we, we're in a little bit of a, of a pinch, a bind, and that's okay. And the reason why it's okay, because, well, I know that you listeners out there, uh, you want to continue to keep fighting for the faith on the air and Pirate Christian Radio afloat. So here's the deal. We we need to get uh, 300 to 350 new uh, crew members uh, within the next 30 to 45 days. If you are not already a, an active crew member of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, um, we truly uh, need to have you join our crew uh, so that we can meet our budgeted expenses and we don't have a shortfall. The reality is is that we don't have uh, uh, we don't really keep a cash reserve here at uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. So, uh, we, you know, we, what comes in usually goes out. And in in the past, uh, as our expenses have grown, so have uh, so has our uh, listener support. Unfortunately. That it hasn't been keeping pace lately, and as a result of it, uh, you know, well, the, the, things are kind of getting tight. So, and, and I'm saying that <laughs> understatedly. That let's just put it that way. So, if you're not already a, a member of our crew or don't support Fighting for the Faith uh, and Pirate Christian Radio, we truly need you to uh, support us financially. The way you do it: visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, it, you're signing up to contribute every month automatically $6.95. It's not a lot of money. And, uh, and you know, to put it in perspective, we're talking about one venti latte and one smaller or, you know, or regular coffee at Starbucks in, 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 in a 30-day period. And but the reality is it means a lot to us because uh, when we add that extra 300 to 350 crew members what it'll do is it'll make sure that on a month to month basis we're able to meet our budgeted expenses. And the good news is is that when you join there are perks and right now the current perk that we have available for you is uh, is that uh, you get to uh download uh, at no additional cost, our latest book entitled "The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners." It's a series of sermons on on the sufferings of Jesus uh, delivered by uh, Martin Luther, and I edited those sermons, brought the language into the 21st century, and I got to tell you, they are fantastic. And I 
truly believe that uh, you will be blessed and uh, as a result of it and edified through, uh, through those sermons. Um, so the, the, that's that perk. There's other perks that I've talked about and more that we will talk about. But uh, so uh, please join our crew. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can uh, do so by clicking on the donate button. That makes it so you can make a gift of your de- uh, decision as to the amount or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. I, now, changing changing subject here. It's I cannot believe how long I have gone today. All right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to save the Al Mohler piece and the uh, William Swirla piece uh, till tomorrow's program. Uh, so I, uh, I apologize to that. I I just got into the groove and and got to talking and <sighs> anyway, so what I'm going to do, I'll save those till tomorrow. And what I'm going to ask you to do right now, if you have your Bible, I I need you to grab your Bible and flip on over to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 9. And uh, like I said at the opening of the program, a lot of people who call themselves red-letter Christians, um, uh, they um, ignore these red letters. But the reason I want to read them is because of the stuff that I've been reading on the program, specifically on Monday's program, uh, the, the the work that I uh, quoted from, from Franz Pieper, who's uh, one of the uh, major Lutheran theologians of the 20th century, from his work on understanding the distinction between Orthodox and heterodox churches. Um, he, you know, he was emphasizing the need for pure doctrine. It seems like kind of a goofy thing to talk about nowadays, but I want you to pay close attention as I as I read this section from the book of Revelation to the red letters and Jesus' view of false doctrine and sexual immorality. And because one of the things I've noticed is, is that uh, there seems to be, in, in some cases, um, the two go hand in hand. Um, you know, so you, you got false doctrine that many times manifests itself in really bad practice. And so uh, you know, I'll make the appropriate comments as we go, but we're going to start at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I'm reading from the ESV. That's the English Standard Version. Now, I know that many of you out there have different uh, Bibles. If you want to follow along in the ESV, um, what I would recommend doing is going to the website BibleGateway.com, type in Revelation chapter 1, and then select the uh, the translation for the ESV so that you can follow along in the way I'm reading it. But uh, let, let me let me uh, then I'll just dive into it now. Here we go. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos, the island of Patmos, and on, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, "Write what you see in a book." And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and Pergamum, and Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and from his face was and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead, and he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Is there any doubt as to who who's talking here? Who is the one who died and is now alive? That would be Jesus. This is how we know we're t- these are red letters that we should be listening to here. And this is what he says. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I want to keep, I want to point something out to you here. One of the things theologians debate is what is meant by the term angel here. Now, is it talking about a heavenly being like the angels of God, or are we talking about uh, messengers? It, it, there's there's debate that goes on regarding the term, and one of the one of the positions is is that God Jesus is having John write to the messengers of the church, otherwise known as their pastors. That's one view of this, and it's worth considering. And it, if when you take it in when you take it in that way, Jesus is having specific notes sent to the pastor of each of these congregation the angel or the messenger who presides in the in the pastoral office in the in those churches something to consider chapter 2 to the angel of the church in Ephesus right now pay close attention to what are we paying attention to here Jesus view of false doctrine and sexual immorality this is Jesus view because Jesus be doing the talking the apostle John here at this point, he's he's literally taking the role of a secretary. This portion of the Word of God is literally dictated to him, you know, secretarial style. So, you know, you know, so Jesus says, To the angel in the church of Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who hold who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Notice that Jesus is commending them here for doing Berean work there in the church of Ephesus. I know that you were enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this, yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, this I'm going to point something out to you here. The early church fathers, um, I think Irenaeus in particular, uh, revealed to us that the Nicolaitans were a antinomian sect that went under the name Christian. Um, but they they ate food that was sacrificed to idols. They indulged in sexual immorality, all in the name of being Christian, the Nicolaitans. Okay, And so here's what Je- Jesus is commending the church at Ephesus. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus also 
hates the works of the false teachers of the Nicolaitans. So let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus then continues. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that you are uh, that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus is telling this church, hey, Satan's going to throw some of you in prison and you're going to die. <laughs> Great. Mm-hmm. And he says, be faithful even unto death. To the angel of the church at Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food that is sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, and that no one knows except for the one who receives it. To the angel of the church... Notice that Jesus here does not appreciate the teachings of Balaam, Balak, uh, sacrifice to, food sacrifice to idols, those who in his name are practicing sexual immorality, and uh, he, hates the, you know, he hates the Nicolaitans here, and Jesus calls them to repent of their false teaching and the false practices that come about as a result. Jesus doesn't take a high view of just about anything goes. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he calls people to repent of their false doctrine and their sexual immorality. Now, I don't think that it's—I don't think it's a coincidence that the emergent church has become one of the premier outspoken advocates of the homosexual community, and are one of those people out there who is saying basically that people can be unrepentant homosexuals and be Christians. The emergent heresy, in this case, uh, shares common ground with the Nicolaitans. Yeah, think about it. It's an, it's a form of antinomianism that gives license to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality in the form of homosexual perversion. We continue. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food that is sacrificed to idols. 
I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and what you heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel in the church of Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Now let me make a point here. Uh, Laodicea, it's in modern-day Turkey. And they are known for two things in the ancient world. Number one, they had hot springs. They had volcanic hot springs where people would come and vacation, and it had medicinal powers, they thought. So they were known for their hot water. They were also known, they had a medical school there that made, that they were famous in the uh, ancient world for an eye ointment. 
that uh, that you know cured eye diseases. I'm just telling you what they're known for in ancient history. You need to know that, otherwise you're not going to quite get the punchline of what Jesus is doing here. <clears throat> so there, it's a wealthy resort town, uh, famous for its uh, hot hot water springs and um, and their uh, f- famous eye ointment. Okay, so wealthy people, affluent. Okay. Angel to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write these words: the, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works; you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot! So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, "I am rich; I have prospered; I need nothing," not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's all what we call irony. <clears throat> I counsel you to buy from me gold that's been refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may be so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and I knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So those are red letters. Those are messages from Jesus Christ himself, taken via dictation. Okay, when it comes to, you know, we we talk about the inspiration of Scripture. In this particular case, inspiration took on, write down these exact words and send out these letters. And all of them are red letters. What do you think after hearing Jesus' letters to these seven churches, what Jesus' opinion of false doctrine, false teaching, false prophetesses, and sexual immorality is, are? Do you think he's... uh, He's an anything-goes kind of an emergent guy? Or is he something completely different? We would be wise to listen to what the Spirit has to say to the churches. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Contestant number three in our worst Easter sermon of the year contest. You're not going to want to miss this one. We don't need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Almighty, 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. We say this popular response in the season of Easter because we believe it happened, that Jesus rose from the dead, and by his death and resurrection, we have the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. But what if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead? That is the topic of a debate between Dr. David Scare of Concordia Theological Seminary and Dr. Robert Price, a fellow for the Jesus Seminar and author of the books The Case Against the Case for Christ and The Reason Driven Life. This live two-hour radio debate takes place May 15th from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock Eastern Time, and you can listen live at piratechristianradio.com. During the course of the live broadcast, there'll be an opportunity for you to call in live with your questions for Dr. Price or Dr. Scare. Listen to this special Table Talk Radio live presentation, a debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? May 15th, 8 o'clock Eastern Time, live at piratechristianradio.com. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in-your-face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. We're back. Hour number two. <laughs> I'm just so excited because after this sermon, we are halfway through our worst Easter sermons of the year. Now, Ian Lawton, I mean, he's royalty among the emergent crowd. Spiritual, but not religious, supposedly, but... Um, Here we go. Look at the bad end. Well, the ugly. <laughs> Seems to be the theme for the week, the ugly. <laughs> we are at Equal Opportunity's Sermon Reviewing Service. Contestant number three. This week in our uh, Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest comes via C3 Exchange. They are in, um, oh, what, what city are they in? Spring Lake, Michigan. This is a church that was formerly a 
Christian church, kind of in the Reformed stripe, and their uh, previous pastor steered them into liberalism, and now they have a new pastor, and his name is Ian Lawton. The name of the sermon we'll be reviewing that was preached on Easter Sunday is entitled Inclusive Easter. Now, (laughs) I guarantee you ain't going to hear about Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins and him raised again on the third day for your justification. In fact, that's going to be openly attacked in this sermon. <laughs> now, there, <laughs> I kid you not, it's, it's, it's really that bad. Uh, what I want you to listen for as you're listening to this sermon um, is um, not necessarily um, the attacks that I've already warned you about, but I want you to listen to some of the themes that he thinks are more important to be preaching about on Easter Sunday than the things he's attacking. And notice the eerie, creepy consistency with the things that Ian Lawton thinks are important and you know, and how we're hearing a lot of those same themes and same ideas coming from seeker-driven pastors during the normal Sunday after Sunday kind of preaching. Alright, let's kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is Ian Lawton and his Easter sermon entitled Inclusive Easter. You know, several times in the last week, it happens to me every year, maybe in a store or wherever it is I am, people say, well, you must be busy this week, being Easter week. My response in the last few years has been the same, that is, well, I'm busy, but it ain't got nothing to do with Easter. (laughs) Easter in a community like ours can be a little conflicted, can be a slightly tense time because... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because, you know, Easter's all about Christ's death on the cross for our sins and his bodily resurrection from the grave for our justification to save wretched sinners like you and like me. Yeah, um, yeah. by Jesus' resurrection, he proved that he was who he claimed to be, the one true God uh, in human flesh, the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. Yeah, that pesky God who who didn't allow people to worship any old god that they chose, you know, who punished idolaters and spiritists and sexually immoral people. And, <clears throat> yeah, let's see what Ian Lawton's going to do then. Yeah, that. We come with so many different responses and expectations of what Easter will be. Now, in the old days, we would be busy, really busy during Easter week. You'd be gathering just about every day doing one thing or another because traditionally you follow the story of Jesus' death and resurrection day by day, sometimes... Yeah, Holy Week, yeah, from Palm Sunday on, yeah. Sometimes even hour by hour. Yeah, yeah, you know, sometimes, yeah, that, that Good Friday stuff, when hour by hour you pay attention to where Jesus was on the cross and what he was saying, and yeah, that, that, yuck, yuck. Now, that's an uncomfortable thing for many people in this community, myself included. That's an uncomfortable thing because following the Easter story hour by hour, day by day, as if these things literally happened the way the story has come to us. As if, you know, Jesus literally died and literally rose. Come on. 
seems to take us back to an idea of salvation that many of us have left far behind. When we see the Easter story, literally it tends to take us to that idea that somehow God rose Jesus from the dead to help us to rise above our sinful natures. So here's the deal. Ian Lawton knows the biblical gospel. Ian Lawton hates the biblical gospel. Ian Lawton despises and loathes the biblical gospel, and he's built a, quote, spiritual community around other people who likewise hate and loathe that gospel. Make no doubt about it. He knows what it is, and he flat out rejects it. That's a difficult idea for many of us because we believe and I believe that what we're trying to do in life is not rise above our natures but to go back to our natures, get back to the essence of who we are. Okay, (laughs) really? Okay. Seven billion sinners running around on the planet. Loved Mark uh, Devers' um, uh, point. And it's like you know flipping a coin in seven billion times it turning up heads. I mean, what are the chances of that? So Ian Lawton, this is his idea. This is not what's revealed in Scripture, but he's got a spiritual community there. I mean, no wonder he got rid of the, ch- the cross on his, quote, church. Salvation to me is not escaping our human nature. It is coming more integrated in our nature. Accepting who we are, living who we are, being who we are in the world, and letting that authenticity make a difference to people around us and to the whole world. Notice the theme of authenticity. How many times have you heard a seeker-driven or emergent guy talk about the, the importance of authenticity? Well, what did Ian Lawton just tie authenticity to? Being authentic to your true nature, which isn't a sinner. No, 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 no. You're good. Being authentic in his mind, when he talks about authenticity, it's being authentic to who you really are. And who you really are is really good. Think about that the next time you hear a seeker-driven guy kick around the term authenticity. So this idea that Easter is a celebration of salvation is problematic for many of us. We come here with many different expectations, and I've been struggling thinking about this morning, struggling to think, what could we do here that would bring us together? As I explained to these people that asked me during the week, Easter and Christmas are times that tend to polarize a community like ours because they revolve around beliefs. You either believe them or you don't believe them. We have other days in the year, like Earth Day, and the times we celebrate wellness, and the times we celebrate creativity. Celebrate wellness and celebrate creativity. Hmm. Sounds like stuff I've heard Erwin McManus kicking around and wellness. Isn't that what the whole Daniel plan's all about? Wellness? Hmm. And the times we celebrate World Religions Day and equality and so many other values that we can unite around. And the thought struck me that there are certain things that do unite us even at Easter time. And I want to focus there this morning. 
It seems to me that every one of us, with our different life experiences, is looking for something similar at a time like Easter. So what's the decider of truth? Our life experiences. Not the Word of God as revealed, no. Our life experiences make it so that we can unite around wellness. We can unite around creativity. We can unite around authenticity. Hmm. We're looking for a reminder that it's possible. It's possible to change the course of history. We're looking for a reminder. So we're looking for um, a reminder that we can make a difference in the world, that we can change the world. Hmm. Why is it that from this guy who boldly rejects, in your face rejects the biblical claims, the biblical doctrine, uh, rejects the bodily death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the things he finds important, making a difference in the world, authenticity, wellness, why is it that those same things that he finds so valuable are the exact same things that we hear so many seeker-driven megachurch pastors also find so important to preach and teach about. Weird, isn't it? Just weird that from a doctrinal point of view, uh, those guys um, value the same things as Ian Lawton, the guy who flat-out hates the biblical gospel. Weird, isn't it? Reminder that it's possible. It's possible to let all those things which feel heavy and burdensome, to let them go, surrender them, and rise to a new level of acceptance. And as I thought about it, I thought we really are looking for very similar things. We're looking to be reminded that magic is possible in the world, and maybe it even begins within. Now, the reason we played the short clip from Into the Wild was because what you saw, how many have seen that movie, by the way? If you haven't seen it, I highly, highly recommend it. One of the best movies I've seen maybe in my life, certainly in the last decade. The story of Chris McAndrews, you saw him up there and he changed his name when he went out into nature to Alexander Supertramp. He changed his name, and what you saw up there was a collage of experiences that he had in nature. Because in nature we experience all the wild extremes of life, all the ups and the downs. We can test our endurance in nature. We go on personal quests in nature. We experience awe and gratitude in nature. And we experience fear the wildness, the uncontrollable nature. We get all of it. And in the midst of all of those different experiences, we're all looking for something similar. Now let me illustrate to you by going back in my life to when I was six years old. When I was six years old, I decided that I wanted to dig a hole in the ground. So I took an old car tire I laid in the dirt in the backyard, and every afternoon I came home from school, I sat in my tire, and I dug. I dug fully believing that eventually I would get to China. (laughs) 
absolutely believed that if I came home every day and sat in that tyre and dug with my little plastic spade, handfuls of dirt flying over the edge of the tyre, if I stuck with it long enough, eventually I would get to China. Wasn't the smartest kid, as you can appreciate. <laughs> it always amazed me the thought that you could dig down and if you, if you dug down far enough, you'd eventually come up somewhere else. That completely baffled me. But I was determined to see what would happen. And I was sure that as I dug deep into the ground that I would travel through lost cities and discover treasures before eventually arriving in China. My little tire became my whole world. It became my place of magic when I was six years old. When I think back, I, I remember there were certain experiences of trauma that I had around that same time. And I wonder whether I gathered in my tire every afternoon because this was a place that I could control. This was one place that I could control and I could believe. And when I was six years old, I walked into the boys' bathroom at my school and found my best friend sitting on the lap of a strange man. I don't know what happened, but it wasn't right. I knew that. And then soon after that, my friend who sat next to me in class was there one day and he was gone the next because he found himself trapped in an old abandoned fridge. Now, what's weird is he denies original sin. And yet he's describing in his own life what he's experienced as a result of the sin and rebellion in the world. Hmm. One day he's in his seat, the next day he's gone. That wasn't right. And then one day I walked into the kitchen all around the same time. I seemed to have this series of events, traumatic events in my life. Walked into the kitchen of my home and I found a man holding my parents at knife point. At least that's how I remember it. Whatever happened, I knew it wasn't right. And as a six-year-old, I started to think, there's something not right with the world. There's something not right about what's going on. This isn't right. This world that I thought was magical and beautiful, suddenly I discover is not trustworthy. It may be not a friendly place. All the things that I held to be sure about the world suddenly started to crumble around me. And so what did I do? I sat in a tire and I dug. The only place that I could control, I dug. Believing in magic, believing that it was possible to get to China. I wonder what your memories of childhood are. When did you go through an experience of disenchantment? And what did you do? What did you do to reclaim the sense of magic? That the world may be unfriendly at times. It may be insecure most of the time. But there is something you can hold on to. I want to suggest to you that at Easter time, this is what we're all looking for into our uncertain lives, into our experience of the world that can be unfriendly and unsecure in so many ways. We're looking for something that we can hold on to. Well, I hold on to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ after he was crucified on a Roman cross. 
for my sins. Because through his resurrection, I have hope that I have a right. I, I know that I have a right standing before God because of his shed blood, and now I have hope of a better life that will be revealed when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, when heaven and earth will pass away, and he will make a new heavens and a new earth. Weird. I mean, he rejects the one thing that really can give us hope, the one true thing that we can hang on to. And what is he going to replace it with? I can't wait to hear this. We're looking for our own tire that we can sit in, we can dig, believe in magic. Now, there's a beautiful quote that I always remember from the children's author, Beatrix Potter. And she said, we go through stages where we half believe, but wholly play with fairies. We half believe, but wholly play with fairies. Now, it must have been soon after I was six that I realized that I would never get to China. I was a persistent kid. I sat there week after week in the dirt. But there must have come a time when I realized that I would never get to China. Just as there comes a time when we only half believe in magic, Easter fairies and tooth tooth fairies and Easter bunnies, all of that, tooth, tooth bunnies, that's, that's a new one. That's Christmas, I'm sorry. There comes a time when we only half believe the stories, including the Easter story and the resurrection. We only half believe it, but we wholly play with it. Maybe that's where you find yourself now. Now take your mind back 2,000 years to where this story began. The first century when they gathered all of these ideas, and we all know that most of the details of the story of Easter came from pagan roots of the time. They gathered all... No, they didn't. Um, They came from eyewitness testimony to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, so notice that he's buying into a mythology regarding the biblical stories, claiming they're a mythology, but he's wrong. He's absolutely dead wrong. All these details together into an Easter story. Isn't that what they were doing? Weren't they sitting in their own tire, digging, trying to believe in magic in a world that was unfriendly to them, oppressive, insecure? Weren't they trying to hold on to something that they could be sure of and that would keep them believing in the goodness of life. They had their own idea of magic. Their idea of magic was much like mine as a six-year-old. They believed that if they did certain things, they could at least help the seasons to keep changing. They believed that they played a role in the sun god returning in spring. Because they believe- And Christianity and the story of Christ rising from the dead has nothing to do with us performing rituals in order to bring the sun god back in the spring. Believed in that magic, they kept doing the things that they were doing year after year. They burnt logs. They held rituals. They celebrated green. They celebrate warmth in a way that we can't fully appreciate because... We know that on a certain day, we can expect the weather to start changing. They didn't have that certainty. 
And so they created stories and rituals that enabled them to sit in the dirt and dig in a tire and keep believing in magic. Now, over the years, we've grown, we've learned, science has informed us. We now know so much more. So what can the Easter story offer us now? The Easter story can still be powerful, even if you only half believe it. You can still play in it. The Easter story is... (laughs) Boy... Notice the joy, 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 joy down in his heart. Where? Down in his heart. Wow. Like there's no joy at all. I mean, <laughs> serious. I've been to uh, I've been to Good Friday services that have more joy than this. I mean, talk about a wet blanket of a sermon. I mean, talk about he's complete. He's offering us complete hopelessness. Good night. A wonderful symbol of life renewed. Now, the reason I've been busy this last week is is because, well, partly at least, I've been part of a production. For the first time in my life, I've been on stage. I don't consider this a stage, by the way. I just happen, it's just incidental to me that I'm raised here. I don't consider this a stage. But for the first time in my life, I've been on stage, even briefly, to play a very small part in the production of Pygmalion. We have some of the cast here this morning. We've got Higgins here and others on the cast. The director's here also. And I appreciate all you guys because I've learned something from being part of Pygmalion that relates to Easter. I had a very small part. I'm the bystander, by the way. I'm the nameless bystander. Not only do I not have a name, I also don't have an adjective. I'm not anything in particular. I'm just the bystander. Just a small part, but it gave me an insight into the way the whole production comes together. Now, this is what I've learned about Easter from Pygmalion. You know the story. It's the story. If you don't know Pygmalion, it's the same story, a very similar story to My Fair Lady. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, Pygmalion isn't found in the biblical text regarding what happened on Easter. Hmm, how weird that you're finding meaning regarding Easter in Pygmalion. Strange place to find it. It's the story of Eliza the flower girl who was picked up by Higgins and uh, he wins a bet that he can turn this woman into a duchess and pass her off at a party where she will become genteel and particularly her speech will be improved. This is what I learned about Easter from the Pygmalion story. From one perspective, what Higgins does to Eliza is like the old view of salvation. As if someone from outside of you can take you and change you and make you what they want you to be and then pass you off in the world. Yeah, that's what's going on. Jesus just wants to change you into who he wants you to be. Oh, talk about inauthenticity. Like Jesus knows what's best for me. Yeah, right. It's the old view of salvation that many of us have left behind, as if God can take us and make us something other than what we are and pass us off so that we can receive entry into some eternal salvation. Many of us have left that idea behind. But Pygmalion is a complex story. There's many layers to it, 
And I see something else there as well. Because what happens through the story is that Eliza begins to find confidence in herself. By the end of the story, she believes that she can be something in the world. She discovers her true nature. Speech is just a superficial thing, but deep beneath that, she reminds herself of her own nature. As a divine spark in the world, a light for others. So it's a denial of that we're sinful by nature, that man's problem is sinfulness. No, no, no. The problem is is that you've forgotten your true nature, and you have a divine spark within you. Hmm. So you're actually good, and you've got a divine spark that you've got to fan into flames, because that's your true nature. You don't need God for that. You just need a, you know, a good fan or something, you know? That is what I take to be the meaning of Easter. Not that someone else changes us, but rather that in the midst of the uncertainty of life, we find something that taps us back into the magic of our true nature, the essence of who we are. And once we find that, magic happens around us. Now, it's not magic like digging to China. It's not magic like thinking that you can bring the sun back. It's magic that believes and keeps believing that change is possible. But it always comes from within. There was a cell phone commercial several years ago now. It came from Iceland, I believe. Where one of the country's only Catholics created this ad and actually had it approved by the Catholic Church there. It was considered to be pretty radical. So it was a commercial advertising a new cell phone. Jesus is sitting at the the table of the Last Supper, but there's one seat empty, and it's the seat of Judas. Judas wasn't there. And they're talking about, where's Judas? Where's Judas? And Jesus pulls out his cell phone and says, well, I'll just call Judas, and we'll find out once and for all where he is. Now, it's a video cell phone, one of the first video cell phones. So Jesus calls Judas on his video cell phone and discovers Judas downtown, messing around, goofing around with some soldiers, laughing and having a great time, and one of the soldiers holding a bag of coins. When Judas answers his phone and realizes it's Jesus, he has this horrified look on his face. When Jesus looks in the phone at Judas, he has a look like, Aha, I got you. And then the caption comes up on the screen, So-and-so, cell phone, changing the course of history. (laughs) Changing the course of history. That's the Easter message. You in this moment... Uh, The Easter message is changing the course of history? What? Like Eliza in Pygmalion. Like me as a six-year-old boy like the early disciples coming to terms with the confusion of their world, you can change the course of history in this very moment. That's the Easter message. All those things which have been holding you back from your past, whether it's fears, hurts, betrayals, disappointments, 
Um, or well, like Rick Warren says, hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Yeah, that. Those things are holding you back. Okay. Why do I feel like I hear these kinds of messages, these these exact themes from the Seeker guys? Hmm. All the things we see in the Easter story, all the real, everyday, earthy experiences of life, all of those things in this moment. You can change the course of history by choosing to find strength from within you to rise above them. And to return to your essential, original nature. So it's not that you're evil, it's just that you've forgotten your original nature. And you just got to return to it and find that strength within you. Find your inner sparkle. And that's the Barbie theology we reviewed a while ago. And be all that you can be. Now this is good news. This is good news not just for you, but it's good news for people around you. No, it's not. This isn't good news at all because... um, Pygmalion and that commercial from wherever, that those aren't authoritative regarding uh, God and anything of the sort. Jesus actually has a good claim. He claimed that he was the God of the Old Testament in human flesh, proved it by raising himself from the dead, which means that he speaks with authority. You're just speaking from your, well, from the hip, from your, you know, from your own ideas. What you're offering us, Ian, is complete hopelessness. And that's good news for the world. You know what happened just a couple of days before Christmas? This world that we live in was changed. A couple of days before Christmas, a fruit seller in Tunisia decided that he'd had enough of being oppressed by corrupt officials. He set himself a flame in front of government buildings, sparking a series of revolutions that even now we're still watching with our mouths open in the Middle East. That one man who'd had enough changed the course of history, obviously for himself, but for people around him. That's the, that's the significance of the Easter story. So when we understand this story, when we go back and, and read it without the piety, without the theology that's been put all around the story for centuries, what we find is that it's a real story. It's an everyday story. Yeah, just get rid of the theology, you know, the stuff about sinful by nature, Christ dying on the cross for your sins, calling you to repent and be forgiven. Yeah, if you could just chuck all of that stuff, you can read it like uh, about the guy in Tunisia who lit himself on fire and caused a revolution. Oh, man. This is so, so dark. So sad. A story of a man who'd had enough of corruption and decided to take matters into his own hands. And did he change the course of history or what? This man changed the course of history. And whether you believe in a literal resurrection or not, believe that when he changed the course of history, what he was doing was reminding people from that day forward that it's possible to keep believing that it's possible to make change in the world and to begin by changing yourself within. 
So maybe that brings us together. Maybe that gives us a sense of unity on an occasion such as this. Some of us come here with Christian backgrounds and the Easter story is familiar. It's an anchor for us. Others of us don't. Others others of us find the Easter story offensive, problematic. We'd rather leave it behind. Let us draw together, all of us, no matter what our backgrounds, no matter what our different beliefs, let us all draw together and come back to our original natures, which is perfectly peaceful, like nature, accepting, able to surrender. Let us come back to our original natures and believe that starting from within, we can, in this very moment, change the course of history. And the spirit within me that is perfectly peaceful and accepting greets that same spirit in you. Namaste. (laughs) He ended with namaste? Oh, you have got to be kidding me. Wow. Well, there you have uh, contestant number three in this year's offering for our worst Easter sermon of the year contest. And uh, boy, that was dreary and awful. <sighs> Before I sign off, just I need to remind you, I know I say it a lot, that uh, Fighting for the Faith, well, this is listener-supported radio. We don't have... Uh, big corporate sponsorships or anything like that. We don't have big foundations that support us. Uh, No, we're totally listener-supported. That means we need you to uh, financially support us in order to keep doing what we're doing and continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world. And so the way you partner with us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. You know the drill. One says donate. The other says join our crew. What we need right now, we need 350 people to join our crew between now and the end of May. If you're not already a crew member, uh, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on the Join Our Crew button. It's only $6.95 a month, and the nice thing is, is that there are some perks that go along with it, in, you know, including getting uh, access to each of the books that we publish as they come available. And that right now, if you uh, join between now and the end of May, you get a copy of our latest book, Uh, The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners. Fantastic stuff. It's a great book, and I'm sure you'll find it to be a very useful uh, resource for you in your library and one worth uh, having and reading. So uh, if if you if you don't already if you're not already a member of our crew, please go to our website, click on the uh, join our crew button. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution and decide the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what did you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there. Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.